At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. This is the New York City Cast with Will Hill, presented by Bet Rivers. What is up, New York City Cast, Bet Rivers Sportsbook? Uh, fired up for this one today, Chris Herring, senior writer for Sports Illustrated, also New York Times best selling author. His book is Blood in the Garden about the 1990s New York Knicks. Uh, Chris and I are going to talk uh, about his book, really, just some great games, some great moments, some iconic series uh, in moments. So here's my conversation with Chris. You know, I thought we were going to start this podcast. I was going to have to apologize to you because I am uh, a Minnesota Vikings fan. You are a Michigan alum. It looked like for a minute last week I was going to steal your coach. He gets on a plane signing day. Uh, but the next thing you know, he's coming back to Michigan. Are you surprised he stayed? Uh, a little bit. Not completely surprised. I thought that the reports were a little bit premature just because um, if you know anything about Jim Harbaugh, the question about whether he can win is never – the question, it, it's always kind of like, how long can he stay in a job? And, and does he start to rub people the wrong way or vice versa? Where he starts to get annoyed by other people. So um, you figured if he was going to leave for another gig that he was going to want, with all the suitors he probably has, he was going to want relative control of whatever he was taking over. Um, so I thought people were kind of describing it as a done deal. And if he needed to go in and sit down and interview, with a place that it was probably not as done a deal as, as people were making it out to me. And I think that's kind of what, what happened, essentially, seemingly. Yeah, I haven't read too much about it other than, like what you said, he kind of walked in and assumed he had the job and that wasn't the case. And the next thing you know, he's back and he's saying, it's never going to happen again. It's not going to be a reoccurring issue. And I actually, yeah. uh, I, I bet Georgia plus, uh, I bet Michigan plus seven and a half against Georgia that night. And about three plays in, I was like, uh-oh, I, I, I made a big, <laughs> big mistake. In that one. Yeah, that, that game... I think a lot of Michigan fans probably had the same orientation I did for that game, though. They had had such a, a great season to that point, and you know, you you work with the sports, but you know, like they were not supposed to be that good this past season. So the fact that they accomplished that, of course, you want to win the whole thing, but it was hard to be that disappointed given that they weren't supposed to be there in the first place. The Ohio State win was wonderful. The you know the blowout win over Iowa was was icing on the cake. Anything beyond that would have just been even more icing, and you only need so much. So I, I didn't expect them to even be in the playoff this year. I didn't expect them to win the Big Ten. I didn't expect them to beat Ohio State. So I'm, I'm happy to have them back. I'm, I'm curious what will happen with these coordinators being switched out. Um, but we'll, we'll see what happens. I'm happy he didn't leave for the NFL. Yeah, it's tough. I thought they got a tough break when Bama got in. It looked like they could either play Oklahoma State, Cincy in the semifinals. Then you get to a finals, you got a chance. Who knows? But it just didn't break that way. They're going to have to beat both Georgia and Bama. That was uh, 
a tough scenario, <laughs> but that is not why you're on. You're on because you wrote a great book, Blood in the Garden. Uh, it's a really, it's a trip down memory lane. Uh, so much to get through with this. Uh, I, always, I always think it's fascinating. You know, people focus on the teams that win a lot. And I don't know if NFL Network still has it, but they have a series called Missing Rings where it focuses on some of the best teams to never win, 98 Vikings. Uh, you know, I think 07 Pats are in there. There's, there's kind of a fascination with these teams that get close and, and never get over the, you know, get over the finish line. Did you, did you get that sense doing this book that, you know, there's, there's kind of a fascination and interest for these teams that come close but never get it done? 100%. And, and, and first of all, thank you for, for all the kind words about the book. I think you're spot on. Um, you know, I think you look at the, the most watched 30 for 30 before the last dance. It was the Fab Five documentary. Uh, there was a 30 for 30 on the, those Buffalo Bills that kept losing to the Cowboys. Like you said before about some of those teams from the NFL. I think there's always been a, a fascination. And, and a couple people have just asked me point blank. Do you think this book is as interesting if, if the Knicks win? And I don't think it is. Uh, I think you probably would have had a book done sooner on them, first of all, if they had managed to win. Um, just because, it, I mean, you always see books about the winners, not to mention the winners that, that win in a big market with a massive fan base. So I think that part of the intrigue with this team is how close they got to winning and how tortured they were by not winning, particularly John Starks, Pat Riley. Um that's part of their story. And I think it's part of kind of what makes them so memorable beyond just how physical they played, physically they played, beyond who their rivals were during those years and Michael, the Pacers and, and the Heat, um, beyond the personalities with, with Mason, Starks, Oakley. Um, you know, so I, I think there was a lot to them, but a massive part of what makes them so intriguing. You know, I did a, a book event with Spike Lee and he used the word Shakespearean and at first I thought he was complimenting my writing and calling my writing Shakespearean. I was like I, I don't think this is my first book I don't think it's on that level he's like no 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 he's like the book is great I'm not saying the writing is Shakespeare I'm saying the story is it's a tragic story that they got that close that many times and just didn't get there and you know they pushed the stone up the mountain and you know keep rolling back on them uh each time and so I understand what he meant by that now and I I do think in some ways it was kind of a tragic story for them yeah, I think part of it too is we all grow up, you watch sports movies, you know, you watch TV shows, they always win in the end. They always score the touchdown, you know, from their own 20 yard line with 10 seconds left. They run the flea flicker to get in, they hit the game winning shot. You never kind of see it from the other end, you know, the team that gets left on the court in Hoosiers that loses. You never kind of see it from that angle. I think that's probably, you know, some of the fascination, some of the interest with it too. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. And it was interesting because, um, you know, there, there are a couple networks that are interested in. Um, you know, the documentary rights for, for something like this, which is extremely flattering, first of all. But, um, you know, between them and the publisher, when I was just taking on the book project a few years ago, they're like, how does it end? Like, how do you write the thing? Normally, like you said, with movies, they've got like an arc and stuff ends on a high note, or even if it doesn't, there's some takeaway that, you know, that doesn't leave people feeling flattened. Um, and I had to think about that for a while. And then really the only way I could really capture it in the book at the end of the book. I started the book in 91, you know, in, in terms of what years I was covering, and I ended it in 99. The first year was when they hired Pat Riley. The last year is when they went to the finals as an eight seed and lost to the Spurs without Patrick Ewing playing in that series. And essentially what I said was that they started that decade more or less by losing to the Bulls 
a team that would go on to win the championship and start their own dynasty that year, essentially. And they ended that run by losing to the Spurs, who were a team that would win four championships in eight years, essentially another dynasty, more or less. And the Knicks each time were, were basically second place. They kept finishing. Think about the, the two runs they made to the finals. They made them immediately after Michael Jordan retired. So the fact that they were basically like that next team in line in the East, I think tells you that they probably would have won at least once, maybe not, maybe more, um, had Michael not been there. And the fact that they, you know, they got so close and that they were kind of, you know, always the bridesmaid and never the bride in, in the story and in the 90s. And I think that's kind of who they were. They were never quite the focal point of the 1990s, but they were always nearby or in the picture. Um, they were intertwined with a whole bunch of weird awkward, strange moments, Spike Lee and Reggie Miller, the OJ chase in game five of the finals, the all the rivalries with Michael and, and certainly the Miami Heat once Pat Riley left to go there. Um, the way I describe them in this book is that they were kind of the Forrest Gump of the 90s, where they were always in the picture some way in some sort of awkward, strange yeah. way, but that they were never quite the focal point that you could always see them somewhere off in the photo, but that they weren't the focal point of the photo. And um, for a memorable decade like that, I think that matters. And I think that the fact that the rules shifted the way they did to basically stop a team from the Knicks like existing in the future or even in, in real time with them, um, a team that was trying to win through its physicality and trying to kind of basically get past the lack of talent that they have relative to a team like the Bulls or the Jazz or, you know, any team like that. Um, that's a big part of their story. And we would not have today's game and today's wide open spaced out game uh, with all the skill and athleticism that we have without those Knicks teams kind of forcing the league's hand to change the rules, um, to make it more about skill and talent than, than physicality. All right, let's get to the 90s teams. But before we get to that, if you told me a team was giving out posters that were seven feet long, life-size life posters, I'd I say nobody can do anything this stupid. It'd have to be either the the uh, the Knicks, maybe the Sacramento Kings. But in 1987, <laughs> on St. Patrick's Day, the Knicks hand out seven-foot-two life-size posters of Patrick Ewing. Fans are throwing them onto the court. Uh, it's funny, we were just talking before. They were playing the Nuggets, and the score is similar from that game in 1987 to last night with the Nuggets where they get blown out. Uh, you know, how bad was it, and what kind of turned it around? Was it hiring Riley? Was it hiring Checkets? Can you talk about, you know, the 80s and, and really the transition into this success? Was it was it hiring Checkets, you think? I, I think it was. I mean, there was a brief moment there, a two-year run, where they looked better. They had been really bad and hit really hard by the, the drug problems that were, were kind of engulfing the league at that point in the early 80s. Even Red Holzman's last year, he, he came off a year where he coached a 51 team in the early 80s, I think it was 1982, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and they had been a 51 team that won the division the year before. They brought back the whole roster, and it was not an old team or anything like that. But um, they brought them back, and all of a sudden, they just were awful. And basically, a lot of people will tell you that the biggest reason for that was that the team was – a lot of the guys were strung out on drugs. And they would call and, and schedule practices, and people just wouldn't show up for them. Um because they were out doing other things. And that was kind of how Red Holzman, you know, the greatest coach in the team's history maybe, uh, went out as a coach was that he couldn't even convince his guys to come to practice. So guys really had problems with that. Um, they had problems with injuries, Bernard King, Bill Cartwright. They had problems with the coaches where Hubie Brown just graded on the players and the players did not like him, even though he was, you know, a Hall of Fame guy. 
so there were a lot of issues at play during the mid 80s, early 80s. They were making trades that were horrendous. Um, you know, losing Scotty Pippen or the draft pick that would become Scotty Pippen to get a, a ninth year journeyman, uh, Gerald Henderson. So there were a lot of problems. Um, the thing that started to turn it around briefly was Rick Pitino and them hiring Rick Pitino and him having a strategy that maybe wasn't the most sustainable that he wanted his teams to just fire away from three, three point range at a time where that was not standard. He wanted his teams to run a full court press, which was, you know, has never been standard for professional basketball teams. Um, and maybe not sustainable, uh, energy wise or fatigue wise. Um, but then just as quickly as that started, it was gone because Rick Pitino couldn't stand the general manager, Al Bianchi. Um, so they started to kind of sputter out again in the late eighties, early nineties. Um, and then at that point, Dave Checkets gets hired. He had been the guy that had basically been in charge of the jazz when they, um, drafted John Stockton and Carl Malone and was building something there in Utah, uh, kind of became disenchanted with the ownership situation there and left Utah eventually comes over to the Knicks. He had had all these conversations with Pat Riley before that. During Pat Riley's basically sabbatical, he leaves the Lakers and goes to NBC for a year. And Dave Checkett's hired him um, at a real crossroads for the organization. The team had been horrible for a while. Patrick Ewing had had, I think, five coaches and three general managers in six years by that point. Um, and so he was asking out. He wanted to be traded. Um, and Pat Riley basically said, look, I get where you're coming from. I do think that stuff will be better under me as the coach. Um, I just want you to give this a chance and just picture what it would be like if we do win a championship here in New York someday. Think about the confetti raining down on Broadway, you know, when we're in, on the parade bus. Like, you got to be able to picture that, right? And um, so it kind of convinced Patrick to stick around. And the team built something ugly but beautiful, you know, for fans, I think. They had a defense that was really stout. They were not going to really be the Showtime Lakers. They didn't have the personnel to do that. So Riley said, okay, we're going to go completely in the other direction. We'll play ugly. Um, the Pistons had a strategy that worked against the Bulls up until the Pistons got too old to really make it work anymore. But we're younger than they, they are, and we've got bigger bodies than they do in some cases. So we'll run that back, and we'll make life difficult for the Bulls because we don't have the talent and the scoring that they do. Um, and they did make life very difficult for the Bulls. From that first year, Riley was there. They took the Bulls to a seven-game series. It was the first and only time that anybody would take Jordan to seven games for like another six or seven years uh, when the Pacers finally did it during the title era. Um, they took a 2-0 lead on the Bulls the next year in the playoffs and had a better record than the Bulls. So they overcame some talent deficiencies, certainly on the offensive end, by playing a, a, a brutally physical style of basketball, again, that the league wanted nothing to do with. Charles Oakley had more flagrant fouls by himself in 93 than 15 teams did. Um I mean, it was just a different, different sport from what you would watch now. But, yeah, Riley and, and Dave Checkins, I think, were the biggest catalysts. Riley, I think his DNA was kind of part of that organization for the next decade, really, when you consider that Jeff Van Gundy essentially became his protege and then continued with the same strategy. Yeah, there's so much I want to get here uh, with Riley, with Oakley, and again, people listening, please go out buy the book because I, I promise you there's no way I can get to all these details. There's just so many stories, so many little nuggets in here. I can't uh, overemphasize just how good this book is. Uh, uh, before we get to some of that, 92 to 2000, you get nine seasons here. They win a playoff round in every single one of them. Three conference finals, two finals, no championships. I was racking my brain. I really can't think, you know, all the sports, the Buffalo Bills is more of an extreme example because that's four Super Bowls in four years. 
I can't think of a team that was really this successful for this long that didn't win a title. You know, the Atlanta Braves got one, even though they kind of underachieved. Can you think of a parallel in another sport where a team was this successful this long, this close to knocking on the door without getting in? I'm sure there is one. I just, I, I, I can't think of one. Um, I'd have to go back and look at, I mean, I think the, the most difficult one, like I'm sure the jazz still feel a certain way about getting as far as they did. I'm not sure. Like I I have to go back though. Cause if you look at that era, the bulls, I think won the most games. And then I think it might've been Seattle or, you know, the Sonics or the jazz, somebody like, I think the Knicks had like the third most wins of that era during that decade. Um, and so, you know, it's tough to be in that spot. It's tough to kind of be blocked out. They would have made it to more conference finals, you know, or, or more finals had it not been for Michael. So I, I can't think of that many off the top of my head. Like, like you said, the Bills, I think, are the really unique one that really stand out. Um, I'd probably have to think a little bit to, to really figure out other sports and how how many times a team gets there without actually winning it. Uh, but I can't think of anybody off the top of my head, no. Yeah, it's tough because yeah, it's one thing to have four or five year run to have nine seasons where you win a playoff round in every single series. I mean, that sounds, I, I guess, easy in some respects. All you made it to the second round, big deal. But you know, nine years in a row where you win a playoff series—that's not easy to do, especially you know for a team that didn't win a championship. Shows how uh, consistent they were. I think ninety-two, ninety-three is the interesting one. I mean, there's a lot of interesting ones. Win sixty games, up two games to nothing. Uh, Bulls uh, hold serve, they tie it two-two. Go home for game. Knicks go home for game five. They have home court. Uh, they shoot 20 of 35 from the free throw line. That's the famous or infamous Charles Smith game. Gets stuffed four times at the rim. I went back and listened to Marv's call. I can't tell. I think he said stopped instead of stuff. There's some great alliteration where he's saying Smith stripped, Smith stopped, and then he just keeps repeating it. it it's really a great call, and that kind of adds to the lore of these Knicks games. Having Marv Albert on the call, it's really great uh, you know, to go back and listen to unless you're a Knicks fan. Uh, just going through this, you know, where do they assign the blame? Does, does Charles Smith get the blame? Ewing missed a lot of free throws. Starks missed a lot of free throws. Just kind of rehashing this. Where, where, did, where does really the blame lie with this game five? Because that's really a turning point, I would say. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't hear many of the players blame Charles. I, I'm sure in their, their most private thoughts, they probably do. Um, you know, one of the, the big takeaways for me in reporting the book out, and I think I wrote it this way, is that the players and the, the coaches really were not fans of Charles Smith's game. Uh, he was—he kind of had a little bit of an ugly ducking, uh, du- duckling sort of um, kind of persona on that team because everybody else was so rugged and tough, and Charles was not built that way. He was really the epitome of like a finesse player during those years. Um, and the Knicks wanted to make him more physical, and he just wasn't really that guy, which I think kind of culminated in that moment. And he was not really Pat Riley's favorite guy anyway on the team because he really didn't fit a lot of the things that Pat wanted out of his players. So, um, you know, I, I think if you were to ask them completely privately, no chance that it's published for a book, I think they would probably say he's got to finish that. But, you know, you have a stray guy or two, they'll say, to this day, I think he was fouled. And you watch it and it's not, I mean, to me, there's no clear indication of a foul. Certainly in that moment, you know, Bulls fans would, if you think Bulls fans were really huffy about, the Scotty Pippen, Hugh Hollins, Hubert Davis call. Imagine if they call a foul on on that play there with Charles Smith, because uh, I'm I'm not really convinced he deserved a foul call there. And Charles didn't vociferously argue it. I think you know after the game, I think he said, "You saw the play. You know, watch the replay for yourself." He says it as if he was fouled, 
I'm not really convinced that there was one. And most people don't make that argument that there was one. Um, and I think rightly so. Like, I don't think it was a clear foul anywhere on those four blocks. I think one of them was a steal uh, or a strip from Pippen. But um, so, you know, but most of the guys don't really blame him. Like, there were a lot of things that went wrong in that game. I think the Knicks scored on their first 10 possessions of that game, which is a wild sort of thing to do um, in a game that you lose in a really key game. 20 for 35 was basically the worst they shot all year from the free throw line. So that was big. I think Doc Rivers was something like three for three from the line. And he was the only guy on the team that didn't miss a free throw that night. He remembers even specifically, like, I think at one point he had just come out of the game and then the Bulls had like an illegal defense call against them. So the Knicks got a technical free throw and Doc was normally their technical foul shooter, but he wasn't out there. And he's like, so I remember that really vividly because that makes a difference, you know? Um, you know, if I'm out there, I make the shot. So he thinks about that and rewinds that in his mind. They got out-rebounded. It was the one time in the six games of that series that they got out-rebounded. And they got out-rebounded by 11, I think. And they gave up almost 15 second chance points. I think it was 14. So there were a lot of things like that that really hurt them. I think about the fact that on that last play uh, where Charles Smith has all that happen, the ball was never supposed to end up in his hands. Like, this was a guy that they didn't really call plays for. Um, the ball was in Ewing's hands at the top of the key, which is kind of a weird place for him to have the ball. Um, and when you think about it, really two of their seasons essentially ended with him with having the ball at the top of the key. There was that play, and then he had the finger roll in 95 that bounced out, which started with him at the, at the top of the key, which was not a place he normally had the ball. Um, so he had the ball, stumbled into Stacey King, and fell over and just kind of shoveled the ball somewhere before he fell down and got called for traveling. It ends up in Charles Smith's hands, but it was never intended for it to happen that way. So, there, like, everything, a little bit of everything went wrong in that game. I just think Charles Smith's moment was really crystallized. Um, and I feel for him a little bit, you know, just based on the way he was kind of treated and handled um, the year or two years after that. He has chronic knee problems that, you know, nobody wishes that on anybody, and nobody seemingly knew how serious his knee problems were. He needed basically three surgeries in one year um, and never really recovered from that. He was never the same player after that. Um, but he wears that sequence on his shoulders in a way that John Starks does not necessarily have to do that with Game 7 of the 94 Finals, which to me is a much more painful moment for Knicks fans when you consider that if John just shoots 5 for 18 or 4 for 16 or three for 12, they win a title as opposed to two for 18. Um, if he makes the shot at the end of the game in game six, at the last second, the one that Hakeem Olajuwon just barely blocks, they win the title. Whereas the Charles Smith sequence, they, okay, so if he makes that, they probably win that game. Um, also worth noticing that, like, you know, the Bulls had Michael Jordan on their team, so he might have come down and hit a shot to tie or win the game anyway right after that if Charles Smith makes the first basket there. Um, not to mention that you've got to go back to Chicago for the next game and either beat them there, or if you lose, you've got to beat them in Game 7 at the Garden. So it's not a given that you knock the Bulls out of that series. And then you have to win the finals against the Suns, who had more wins than you did that season anyway. So it's I understand why Charles Smith's thing lives in infamy more. I think that he didn't have as many warm moments to kind of wrap himself in compared to John Starks, where he has the dunk and a whole lot of other moments that really lifted Knicks fan spirits. But um, I do think John's game was a lot rougher and kind of 
that if you change one or two things about that, they win the championship, no questions asked. With Charles's, I'm not sure that that happens, but it's talked about as if that costs them a championship. You know, it's funny. I picture that Charles Smith play happening today. I picture him getting fouled and then us spending five minutes watching a review to see if he really was fouled. It's just kind of, you know, you watch these old games and you think, oh, man, uh, it's kind of like you can't even enjoy the moment anymore with sports, with all these sports, really, because the replay is, uh, makes it so different. And it's just uh, that was really one of my takeaways from watching it is they would call a foul and we'd have to sit here and watch, you know, nine different <laughs> angles. Was he fouled? Was he not fouled? And it kind of takes the drama away from it. Yeah, and you're, it's funny you mentioned that, too, just because even that, I mean, obviously you didn't have reviews back then, but also the, the rules were so different. Like, the Knicks lost uh, game, I think it was game three of that series on their home floor. It was a game where um, it was tied, and Derek Harper just kind of wandered away from Sam Cassell, I think. And so Sam Cassell, who's a rookie at the time, hits a massive three-pointer. Um, because Derek Harper had wandered away from him in the last 30, 40 seconds of the game. That puts the Rockets up by three. The Knicks come back down on the other side. And um, I think a couple plays later, John Starks gets fouled shooting a three that theoretically should have tied the game. But because the rules were different, you only got two shots in, on three-point shot fouls. So John Starks should have been able to tie. Like in today's game, John Starks would have been able to tie the game at the line. But that wasn't the way stuff operated back then. And um, so he doesn't get that opportunity. And as a result of it, the Knicks end up losing. But the rules changed literally that offseason. And so just weird, you know, a lot of weird things like that. The game was just so different back then in a way that um, I'm sure if Knicks fans go back and watch the whole series, it's probably difficult to, to watch that, you know, and to see it work that way. Yeah, it's funny because it's it's not that long ago at the same time. It's sort of like in some ways it feels like it was a few years ago. In some ways it feels like it's 100 years ago just because the rules are so different in uh, uh, just such a different you know different time period. Like you said, the style, the way the rules are called. Uh, if Riley it, it coaches that way today, first of all, his tactics. Let me get to that first. Um, you know, I always thought about Jordan, Kobe. If Byron Mullins, not to throw Byron Mullins under the bus. I feel bad for Byron Mullins, but... If Byron yeah. Mullins acted the way, you know, Jordan and Kobe did with, with you know, not talking to people, not having any friends, would be like, this dude's just kind of crazy. But because they they win, Jordan and Kobe win, it gets glorified. Uh, I think we could say the same for Riley. First of all, you're around the game still. Would his tactics, would his way of coaching, dunking his head in the water, would that fly today? Is that something that's kind of outdated with, with Riley? It wouldn't fly. I mean, maybe some stuff. I, I think maybe the antics in the locker room could work but the, the the truth is if you were to do those things now social media would have it within an hour you know like the players would talk about it um they'd probably be a little bit weirded out by it um i'm trying to think like who's the most intense coach in the nba now um i mean a lot of a lot of riley's proteges not proteges but like guys that he coached Tins, during maybe. that time he coached i mean he coached doc rivers monty williams was in that locker room Tom Thibodeau was on the sideline with Jeff Van Gundy. Um, so you have enough guys around the league, in the league, that were there at the time, during that time, including guys that were on the other sideline or that were on the other teams that they were playing against. Um, but, yeah, I just don't think – like, that part of it is maybe up for debate. Maybe you could do some of that stuff to make a point. You know, some guys would probably view it as zany or maybe – you know, weird, but like you could do it. You could slide into the locker room and cleats and say that you want guys to be more aggressive and basically play as if they're sliding into second base with their spikes up. 
It would be weird, but like you could do it. You would run the risk of it going viral or you know social media getting hold of it, but you could do it. The stuff that wouldn't fly, you could never tell your team that you're just not going to allow the team psychologist to work with your players, not in an NBA that claims to be good about mental health and the idea of recognizing that mental health is an issue for people or a, a more, you know, as a public health issue. So there's that. Um, I imagine that you can't have conversations with your boss and tell your boss that you don't want your boss's wife to get a certain color car um, <laughs> because a green car would represent the Celtics and a red one would represent the Bulls and that that's somehow a betrayal to you as the coach. So I imagine that probably does not happen. Um, I imagine that you, if players want to bring their wives on the road, for a playoff series that you're not going to be in position to tell them no and to put your foot down and say no repeatedly, like these are grown men, you know, it was a big deal when they couldn't have their families in the bubble for different reasons. But like, I think that tells you that these players are grown men. Like they have autonomy to do what they want as long as it's not interrupting, you know, what they're doing on the court. So to call families distractions the way that Riley did back then um, to tell people that his scouts that they couldn't come watch practice if without his prior permission, his own team scouts, um, you know, to, to put it out there that you really don't want your players to be praying. A lot of that stuff wouldn't fly. And, um, you know, Doc Rivers was telling me that Riley would just kind of pop up sometimes at dinner spots uh, that they were going just to kind of see what they were up to. And, um, you know, Doc and other players on the team, I think there was a biography on Pat Riley that came out um, came out the year after Riley started coaching the Knicks. And because it was a book written about Riley and Riley was so weird and kind of offbeat in some ways, there were a handful of players that were reading the book to try to better understand who the guy was. And they would try to do it kind of quietly because they didn't want Riley to know that they were curious about him. Like they'd never been coached by somebody like that before. So it was just, it was just a process. But I say all that to say that no. I mean, a lot of that stuff, I, I, I fully recognize he was a great coach during those years, a fantastic coach. I mean, he was a fantastic coach in the early 2000s too. So it's not just to say in the 90s or just with the Knicks, he won the four championships with the Lakers and then he won another one with the Heat. And he's obviously been a good in management as well. Um, but there's no way some of that stuff would fly today. Like the messaging, the idea, like I, I can't imagine how long he'd be suspended or fined. Um for the idea of telling his players, ordering his players to knock Michael Jordan down and knocking him out of a game, uh, if, if they had the opportunity to do it, uh, showing videos of Rams headbutting each other and violent car crashes before a game against the Blazers, like, there's no way that stuff would fly. Um, or if the league found out about it and then someone got hurt as a result of it, he'd be suspended for a while. So, um, you know, that's part of why I wanted to write this, this book, is just that it, it was such a different time. And it's so foreign. It would be so foreign to people that really didn't pay attention to the era or were too young to do it. I was too young. And I feel like it's just kind of eye-opening to see how different the league was at the time. Yeah, it's a great point because probably a lot of people listening to this that are that are too young say, wow, that's completely different than what I'm used to now. And then you have people say, boy, that's th those are the good old days. You hear that a lot <laughs> where you know, right. you know, they don't knock anyone down like that, which I'm kind of torn. There could be a little bit more. I mean, there's always a balance of it, but I'm not sure – that you know that that's the best style of basketball either so there's definitely a balance between the two amen i uh i've been asked that question a few times the last few weeks like which do you prefer more and i'm like look 
if you could give me today's skill and athleticism and spacing with a little bit more physicality, not enough to where you've got Grayson Allen knocking over Alex Crusoe in the air, because I don't want to see that. You know, and the Knicks had plays like that too during that era where Kenny Anderson got knocked down during a fast break by John Starks and it broke his wrist. Like, I don't want to see that. These guys make too much money. There's too much riding. I mean, as you know, there's there's betting involved. These are players that, you know, you don't ever want to see players get hurt from plays like that where guys are doing something that's dangerous to them. They're, they're running faster. They're jumping higher. There's more space to build up the speed before they get to the rim. You don't want to see these guys taken out of the air like that. So I don't want that, but I feel like there could be maybe a little bit more physicality. But what I miss most about the 90s is the rivalries. Um, you had so many of them in the 90s, the Bulls and the Knicks, the Knicks and the Pacers, the Knicks and the Heat. That, I mean, you, that's three that they had on their own. You can't name three in today's NBA, period. And if you can, it's more rooted in the players that are on those teams than it is the teams themselves because the – Essentially, you know, the league says, oh, let's have LeBron and KD play against each other on Christmas. Uh, the Nets and the Lakers, oh, let's have Chris Paul and, and Steph Curry play against each other, Suns and the Warriors. Like, it's not that the Suns and the Warriors are rivals. It's that they think there's enough of a thing between Chris Paul and Steph Curry. Um, that's fundamentally different than what we had in the 90s, and I, I miss that a ton. But I just think the league has changed too much. The AAU aspect of it has most of these guys being friends before they ever make it even to college. In a lot of cases, um, but more than anything, the, the, the contract situations change so quickly. Um, players ask out, players team up to be part of the same team. And even when they do that, we had the Cavs and the Warriors that played each other for four straight years in the finals. Rivalry, I guess, but also the teams were pretty lopsided once KD entered the picture. Um, so, you know, we had one great Christmas game. Um, then we had a couple of series that were interesting, but not super, super competitive, where it's pretty clear the you know, the Warriors are going to win. So it's been a while since we've had true rivalries um, in the NBA. That's what I miss. Not really the physicality, just the rivalries. Yeah, and I think part of that's the style, but again, part of that is these guys change teams. I mean, LeBron's been on all these teams, Durant's been on all these teams, and they're free agents. They have the right to go wherever they want, and you know, you look at Garnett, he stayed with the Timberwolves way too long, and he gets to the Celtics, wins the title right away. He's like, man, I should have done this a while ago. So I right. get it, but I, I do think it kind of you know, it, it hurts, like you said, the continuity of it, the the Jordan finally getting over the hump against the Pistons, the Jordan versus the Knicks every year. Definitely uh, it, that that aspect of it is something that's lost. Um, I guess we'll, we'll go to 94 here. Uh, obviously an iconic time. The Rangers are winning the Stanley Cup. The, the Rangers, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, the Rangers winning the Stanley Cup. The Knicks get to Game 7 of the Finals. Uh, you have the OJ chase. What is that sort of week like? Uh, I know game five was when uh, the OJ chase is taking place. What are people's recollections? Really just kind of a bizarre time to have the Knicks playing in the finals 2-2. The whole thing with OJ, really just a, a historic day in terms of uh, that aspect of it, June 17th, 1994. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a 30 for 30 about that day and all the stuff that was happening because I think there was a, a PGA major and was it, I don't know, Palmer or somebody else was um, – was stepping yeah. down. Um, Arnold Palmer's or, last round down, of the U.S. Open, yeah, I think it was. And exactly. Griffey hit his 30th homer, I think, in, in June. He's chasing, I think, the home run record, but that that ended up being the strike year, so yeah. Right. So there were a lot of other things happening that day. The the Rangers had their Stanley Cup parade in New York City, and then you had the Knicks playing in a pivotal game five, one where they were tied 2-2. Two to two. Um, And, you know, I think that was so funny that during that game, 
as the OJ chase happened, you had a lot of things. First of all, this was if any city was going to be impacted by the OJ chase other than LA that day, you have like the, the media capital of the country. I mean, the biggest market in the country is New York. So you've got a lot of people that are attending that game that normally would be involved with the news. So you know, I had the detail in my book that Connie Chung had to kind of just bypass her um, her courtside seat because he was married to Maury Povich. Maury is at the game. He's not going to miss it. But Connie Chung has to do the evening news because OJ is literally on the loose, uh, you know, and, and, and fleeing from the police. So you've got that. Um, and you've Twitter got... Twitter must have been going nuts. It, oh, my God. Can you imagine, man? Like, there's a couple things that have happened over, like, the last 20, 30 years that would have really just lit, you know, Twitter and social media into a frenzy. But this one would have taken the cake. I mean, because I... In my mind, I try to imagine, like, who's even on the scale of OJ, both in terms of, like, personality and kind of the way, the role he played within race um, and the way that the country thought about race and the idea that he kind of thought of himself as just an athlete, not really a black athlete. And the one of the first people that comes to mind for me is Tiger Woods, quite frankly, like, which he might be a bigger deal than OJ was, but um, the way that people reacted to everything happening with Tiger Woods when he had the accident and his cheating scandal kind of came to the forefront. Like, that blew up social media in a way that I imagine some of this stuff would have had the same impact, I think. And, uh, yeah, I just, I, I, I don't know how social media would have reacted to it, but it would have been massive. And this is all happening as the Knicks and the, the Rockets are tied. And the Knicks and the Rockets were, like, into this more than their own game to some extent. Kenny Smith, who we all know from inside the NBA, was talking about it during a timeout and, like, walking his teammates through what was happening. And Rudy Tomjanovich sees him, and he says, like, what are you guys talking about? Like, how are you – why are you not paying attention to the huddle and, like, what I'm talking about? Kenny Smith says, Coach OJ's, you know, on the loose. He's, he's fleeing. And he said – who gives a damn? Like, we're in the middle of a tightly contested game five. The series is two to two. We're playing for a championship. Focus. And Kenny's like, yeah, you're right. You're right. But as soon as the timeout was over, Rudy Tomjanovich walked over to the scores table and wanted updates from the people that had monitors in front of them. Because he was like, I wanted to know what was going on just as much as they did. I just couldn't tell them that. I was coaching them. We needed to win a game. But it, I mean, that it, it was it was interesting. Everybody, people that paid hundreds, thousands of dollars for this game, had left their seats to go watch the game, on, to, to go watch the chase on the concourse um, instead of watching the last game of the season at the Garden. Because keep in mind, this was at a time where the series went two, three, two, so the three middle games were at the Garden. Uh, the the Knicks were the lower seeded team. The last two games were going to be in Houston. So not only did the Knicks only have that game left at home, but they had to win that game because they were going to be playing the next two in Houston. So if they lose that, you know, they've got to beat, they've not only got to win two games in Houston, but um, they don't have any games to come back to. So the Knicks did win, but, you know, the team president from those years, Dave Checkets, tells me, uh, he's like, I thought really hard about just making it closed circuit television where the only thing people would be able to see on their televisions was the game itself to basically force people back into their seats because we were, I mean, we needed to win that game. Um, that's what you want a home court advantage for is to have your fans in the seats. And we didn't have that. So he thought about it twice. He was like, uh, I was going to get skewered if I did that by the New York media. But um, 
a wild, wild night. And, you know, one of the reporters covering the game told me that his editor called him in the middle of it and said, you've got to write the best story you've ever written tonight because nobody's watching this game. Like, people will be actually relying on the recaps and the stories about it, the game stories, because nobody's watching it. And, um, you know, nobody remembers the details of that game, really. It made it difficult in some ways to actually write about what happened during that game, uh, aside from a box score perspective, because there's very few places that you could even find the footage of the game without it being a picture-in-picture. Yeah, wow, that's a totally different time. I mean, it's really just an iconic night. And uh, they lose, the, you know, they lose the series. They're up three games to two. They lose game six. They lose game seven. Uh, just going back, looking through all this, the Rockets probably were the better team, right? When you're up three-two, you feel like you let one get away. But would you say, looking, you know, doing your research for this book, working on everything, uh, were, the, were the Rockets were probably the better team? They were. Um, I, I mean, that something about that series, their guard play was was not that highly thought of at the time. They had Vernon Maxwell, who essentially was like Starks, um, as far as just really, really hot and cold. Um, not the most reliable guy that flew off the handle even more than Starks did, I would argue. You know, I think he led the league in technicals that year. He ran into the stands a couple years later. Um, just really mercurial. So they had him, but then Kenny Smith and Sam Cassell were both really, really young. They, they were not vets in the league at that point, so they were inconsistent. They had not played well in that series up until really game seven. Uh, so you had that, but you did have some good big guys on that team. You had Otis Thorpe, and you had Carl Herrera that really killed the Knicks. Uh, you had Robert Ory, who, you know, was a really young player at the time, but really, really solid and, and really versatile. Um, and you had Hakeem Olajuwon, who at that point was the league MVP, deservingly so. Um, a two-time reigning defensive player of the year who made a play in game six to maybe keep the Rockets alive. You know, John Starks had made six jumpers in a row leading up to the last play of game six and got a screen and felt like he had a wide open look. And Hakeem Olajuwon switched the screen and just made an unbelievable play that explains very quickly, like why, how, and why he won defensive player of the year that season. Um, but one of the better seasons we've seen in NBA history where he was both the MVP and the Defense Player of the Year. It's only happened three times, or three people have done it. Um, so it's very, very rare. Um, so I'll give a slight nod to the Rockets. I mean, I think that um, you look at all the things considered, like I think Riley was probably a better coach than, than Rudy T. Um, but, you know, I think some of Riley's stubbornness probably got in the way. Um, and I write a little bit about that in the chapter. I don't want to spoil it for anyone that hasn't read it. Um, but there's a really big turning point where Riley makes a decision or doesn't make a decision based on something that might have happened a couple weeks before the series started. Um, but, you know, the, I, I think the Knicks and the Rockets were basically toe-to-toe -to -toe with each other. They they both had one real star. Um, and the, the truth was the Knicks weren't even getting that much out of Patrick. Patrick shot terribly for the series. I think he had either four or five games where he shot under 40% against Hakeem. Um, and because of that, that was how you got to a point where John Starks kind of had this resting on his shoulders to begin with. That normally you go through your number one option. Starks became their number one option because he really couldn't score on Patrick. And so Starks had way too much, I think, on his plate. It worked for games two to six. He was averaging more than 20 a game. He was averaging seven assists, um, shooting 45% from the three-point line and taking a lot of threes. But 
he shot three for 18 in game one and he shot two for 18 in game seven. And the story that I tell in the book is that he, after Hakeem blocked his shot in game six, Starks was essentially traumatized by it. Couldn't sleep for three nights, Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, leading up to that game seven on Wednesday. Remember the Knicks were in Houston that whole time. So they're sleeping in hotels. Um, you know, some players have described that they couldn't even really watch TV um, while they were in the hotel because just every channel basically had stuff on about the Rockets having stayed alive in game six. And so they were kind of on edge and antsy and just wanting to get it over with. And the Rockets were rested in their own beds, you know, um, confident because they'd won game six, knowing that they just needed to win one more to take the title. And Starks was just traumatized. And uh, so, you know, the idea that it got to that place where Starks had all of it resting on his shoulders um, you know, the, the Rockets had a little bit more to fall back on, and I think they were a little bit more com- confident and comfortable at home. And they probably were a little bit of a better team. They had a little bit more offense to go around than the Knicks did. Yeah, not too many chances where you get a shot to win the championship. I think Lowry had one against the Warriors in 19, that game five. Remember, it went to game six. That's when Clay got hurt. But not too many times the ball in the air where you have a chance to win a championship. It just doesn't seem to break that way. But that's what the Knicks had with, with a, a chance to win the championship. But you don't see that very often. I know. And that's the thing is that I, you know, to me, I, I totally get 93. I totally understand how that's become the more, the bigger focal point of Knicks fans and, you know, how painful that is. And I think there's something to be said too. I don't want to downplay the idea of like finally getting a chance to knock out Michael Jordan, um, which, you know, hadn't happened, wouldn't happen uh, during that era at all, other than I guess the magic right after Michael came back from baseball. Um, but Still, I mean, like that, like you said, it's very rare that you get an opportunity to win a title with one shot, um, and it's very, it's very rare that you have an opportunity to win a title despite someone shooting 0 for 9, 0 for 10. You know, what eventually would be 0 for 11 from three. That game was on last night on NBA TV. I was, I was looking for the Knicks game, and I thought that they, they were on NBA TV for some reason. I, and then the thing that popped up actually was Game Seven of the '94 Finals, and so I sat and watched it. You know. I've sat and watched it beginning to end a couple times because of the research I had to do for the book. But watching it in real time, it's just insane to think that someone can start one for 13 and go two for 18 in a game where you lose by six on the road, you know, against a really good defensive team like the Rockets were. Um, another thing that would have lit Twitter on fire. You know, I guess the, yes. we've had a few, the 27 threes in a row that the Rockets missed. And, yep. you know, we've, we've had some moments that just kind of, live in infamy from that standpoint but um it's something to watch one player just miss shot after shot after shot after shot and just no adjustments made i tried to find who it was somebody on twitter the other day called evan fournier french john starks and i thought it was mean but i also thought it was funny um but yeah uh we a few more and we got to get you out of here but again i can't emphasize enough how good this book is i could talk for hours about this there's just so many stories between riley and oakley and try to get a couple of these but just quickly Kind of a forgotten rivalry in Knicks Pacers. 95, you have the Reggie, 8 points in 8.9 seconds to for game one. And then the series is bookended. Game seven, Ewing misses the finger roll. I didn't realize how crazy going back that game one was. Forget the Reggie stuff. Uh, the Pacers tie it. Then they foul Starks. Starks misses two free throws. Ewing gets the rebound. They can hold for the last shot. Ewing shoots the ball, misses. Uh, and the Pacers get the ball back and, and the Knicks foul. So really just a comedy of errors that end of game one. And I think Knicks-Pacers just kind of a forgotten rivalry. Everyone thinks of the Knicks in the heat with the fights. Knicks versus the Bulls with Jordan. Obviously the chance in 94 to win it. But Knicks-Pacers uh, was a great rivalry and they really played some crazy games. 
Yeah, I mean, I think a big part of it with all that is that, um, you know, the Bulls were the team that I think everybody could kind of look at the Knicks and the Bulls, at least after that 93 series, and say, like, the the Bulls are the better team, but the Knicks have just enough to, to make it difficult for them and maybe beat them if everything goes right for them. Uh, 93 was the one series where I felt like they were kind of on even footing and the media saw it that way. Uh, the Knicks had, like, a 25-26 game home winning streak at home. Um, they had the better record. You know, they had pushed the Bulls to seven the year before. And so, and that was just with them having it come together. When you got the Pacers, though, and the Heat later on, those were two teams that were built in exactly the same image as the Knicks. Uh, you know, I have the anecdote in the book that Donnie Walsh, the Pacers GM, essentially said um, that he he built the Pacers to be more like the Knicks when he saw what the Knicks were allowed to get away with defensively, what Charles Oakley was allowed to get away with. And that as soon as he saw that in a game that they are playing, where there was a play where Charles Oakley basically lowered his shoulder um, to take out a, a cutting, a backdoor cut from Reggie Miller um, and just laid Reggie Miller out. The ball goes flying out of bounds, but the refs, one, didn't call a foul. It almost seemed like they were too dumbfounded to call one. And two, when the ball went out of bounds and bounced up Reggie's hand, they awarded the ball back to the Pacers. And when Donnie Walsh watched it, he was like, wait, so they didn't call a foul and they got the call wrong? Um, he basically took note of the fact that the refs were confused because they didn't even know how to call a play that was that physical uh, or how to actually, what to call. Should they call foul? Should they just be looking at the out of bounds? Even if they're looking at out of bounds, they got the call wrong because they're flustered. And so at that moment, Donnie Walsh was saying, I need to build my team just like that. And I actually want to get a couple guys just like Oakley because it confuses the refs. It throws stuff into disarray. It's mayhem. And you have a better chance of winning and taking out a team like the Bulls by playing like that than you do by trying to outscore the Bulls every game. And uh, the Pacers had been an up-tempo team. They changed their team to look a lot more like the Knicks roster after that. And I think that was – I thought it was fascinating, really, um, that he told me that. So I think that was part of the reason that they disliked each other. Obviously, the interplay between Spike and, and Reggie Miller – and the craziness with that. And, you know, I would say that at least with Michael, it was Michael. He killed everybody. With Reggie, it felt like he saved all that stuff just for the Knicks. So I, I think that's part of the reason that maybe Knicks fans really grew to hate him. Um, and, hell, I'm, you know, I'm looking at my bookshelf right now. Uh, Reggie has a book called I Love Being the Enemy. Um, and the first, I want to say the first sentence of the book starts with, I hate the New York Knicks. It's literally the first sentence of his book. Um, which I think speaks volumes. Like, he does not like the Knicks. The Knicks really did not like him. Uh, the Knicks fans really despise him and the Pacers still. Um, and then you have the Heat, which is just kind of an obvious thing where um, Pat Riley goes there, and the way he leaves, you know, is why the fans hate him and hate the team so much. He obviously built his team to be exactly the same as what he had in New York as well. Maybe a more talented version with Tim Hardaway and, and Alonzo Mourning. But the Knicks really hated Pat Riley, and their management really hated the guy. Hell, when it came time for Charlotte to look for a deal to unload Alonzo Mourning somewhere, because they couldn't afford him, or at least they didn't want to pay him, um, the Heat were in the driver's seat to get him because they had the most trade assets and because Pat Riley wanted a franchise player to build around. The Knicks got involved kind of for the hell of it, just because they were like, ah, we won – our guys are starting to get a little bit older and like, you know, maybe we could win with the twin tower alignment, but even if we can't, let's at least make it difficult for Pat to win this trade. So they traded, tried to trade for Alonzo morning somewhat out of spite 
so that Pat wouldn't get them. And, uh, you know, they ended up having the, the trade offer that the Hornets thought was second best, so they didn't get them. But they tried. They tried to trade Starks and Mason and tried to trade Oakley and Charles Smith um, and draft picks, and they didn't get them. But, like, you got to really hate somebody to really try and trade for someone that clearly, like, you're not going to count it as a negative if you get Alonzo Mourning to trade. He's a great player. But the idea that that was a, a thing that they actually had in their mind it's like, let's try to trade for him because Riley wants him and we don't want Riley to get him. It's crazy. Like, they really hated those Heat teams and the nature of those matchups between the fights and the brawls and the suspensions that marred two of those series and, and really, I would say, undercut the real last opportunity that the Knicks really had to win a title, maybe their best opportunity in the late 90s and 97. We um, have a lot of fans that hate P.J. Brown, a lot of fans that hate Pat Riley, that just hated the Heat and still hate the Heat because of those years. Again, the book is just so good. I can't even get to all these, but one I have to get to. Charles Oakley, he's one of the great enforcers of all time. NBA tough guys. Uh, I would never ask this to his face. Was Charles Oakley a Karen? When he goes out to eat, he's sending food back. He's particular about his food. What What is it with Charles Oakley in the restaurants? Can you talk a little bit? I thought that was fascinating. I'm not a send it back guy. If I ask for like no onions, they put onions on it, I'll ask them to create. But I, I just, in person, I can't send it back. I, I don't know how you feel about it. Uh, talk about you. Oakley and his, and his sort of his dining habits. I'm like you, where, like, especially if you have to ask more than once to send something back, because, like, you don't know. We're in a weird time, man, in the world where people take stuff really personally. They get really frustrated. They're not paid enough to really put up with, with shenanigans from customers. So, you know, Oakley, I was told that. I have a couple theories as to why. Um, Oak, you know, I, I mentioned this in the book. Oakley grew up in a family of mostly women. I think he had four sisters, and he, he basically grew up with his mother um, because his father had passed away really young. Uh, so, you know, he his high school coach always talked about the idea that he felt like he needed Charles to establish more of a toughness because he felt like he was kind of fragile just being around his sisters so much where he couldn't really roughhouse with them. He had one older brother, but the older brother was a lot older. So he couldn't really roughhouse with anybody until he got older. Um, but I think in terms of just his habits, I think he – was very particular about keeping stuff relatively clean and the idea of hard work, but also the idea of cooking and grew up in a family where his mom was a fantastic cook. He was very proud of that. He brought his teammates to Cleveland one year that the all-star game was in Cleveland and wanted them to sit down and have like a, a family meal with his family, with his mom making food for everybody. Charles has essentially become a gourmet chef these days now too. Um, and it's hard. It's like a chicken and the egg thing where I don't know if he became such a, a star cook or star chef because he felt so particular about the way he wanted his food prepared or if because he was a star cook or chef because he got so much experience in the kitchen being with his mother and his sisters and then because of that he was very particular about what he was going to eat because he knew what was good already so I don't know if one came before the other but I do credit that you know in terms of just him having stayed in just great shape for his age and you know Aside from the gray hair and the gray beard, it looks like you can yeah, still go great. out there and, and give guys, you know, five, six hard fouls just because he, he stayed in great shape. So, you know, you, you get athletes like that sometimes where they're just very particular about what they put in their body. Um, but it is something where you're flying first class everywhere in a chartered plane and they bring you first class meals and you're still sitting stuff back. And yeah, he sounds a little bit more particular than I would be. Like I said, you and me are probably in the same boat with that because I'm not. Um, I'm far from shy, but I'm not looking to, I'm certainly not looking to embarrass people. And even if it means I have to kind of take an L 
on something that might not look the most appetizing, I'll still at least try it before I'll, I'll complain about it publicly like that. Yeah, I think I think him being a great chef is probably, you know, it's the same thing with these great players are never great coaches because they want it done a certain way. It's like, how can you not do it as well as me? That's probably uh, part of it. We have to get you out of here. One last one. Where does it go wrong? 2000, it, it, it's kind of over and it's over quickly and you, it really hasn't bounced back. You know, a nice season in 2013, you know, here and there. Last year they played well. It's kind of back to the same old Knicks this year. It seems like they're kind of on the right track, but uh, how did it go wrong? Where did it go wrong in terms of, you know, once it ended, it just kind of ended. Yeah, I mean, to me, so many people point at Dolan, and I don't think it's unfair to to hold him accountable for a lot of it. Um, obviously, you know, there have been decisions, I write about it in the epilogue, that there were decisions that he made um, to step in and be involved with certain trades that that's really not an owner's place generally to get involved in those sorts of conversations. Um, the year I, the first year I covered the team in 2012, 2013, they went 54 games, and their executive, Glenn Grunwald, wins – uh, he doesn't win executive of the year, but he finishes third in the voting because nobody expected the Knicks to be the two seed that year. Um, they overhauled the roster and picked up a bunch of old guys, Jason Kidd, Marcus Camby, Kurt Thomas, Pablo Prigioni, Rashid Wallace, five guys over the age of 35. And they, they parlay that into a 30, uh, I'm sorry, 54 win season. Um, but then Jim Dolan decides to fire the guy that finishes number three in executive of the year voting coming off the best season the Knicks have had since the 90s. Um, and I'm, you know, this is like a couple of days before training camp starts the next year. And it's like, what in the hell? Why, why would you do that? And then later it kind of comes out that Glenn Grunwald had reportedly not wanted to trade for Andrea Bargnani. Um, or if he was going to do it, he certainly didn't want to give up like real assets to do it. The Knicks took Steve Novak, who had led the league in three-point shooting that year, and traded him and traded a bunch of other pieces, including a first-round draft pick for Andrea Bargnani, who was a player that there had been reports out there that the Raptors were willing to just give him away and that they were going to potentially waive the guy if they couldn't find a way to give him away. And the Knicks not only gave up their best three-point shooter and one of the best three-point shooters in the league, but also traded um, a first-rounder for him, among other things. And so it's kind of understandable if Good Grunwald doesn't want to make that trade. Dolan reportedly got involved, and then the trade happened. And it was just kind of like a ridiculous sort of thing. So I lay out plenty of examples in the book, I think. Um, I don't make most of it about Dolan, but I do point out where he starts to get involved and kind of the heavy-handed nature of his involvement and what it kind of presumably led to uh, in the 2000s. But I think the biggest thing, like I, I, even I wouldn't put all of it on him. I think the biggest thing when it comes down to it is that you look at the the – what was it, 13, 14 straight years that they made the playoffs at 1.15, whatever it was, Patrick was involved for 15 years with the Knicks. He was kind of like, a you know, the rising tide that could lift all boats, basically. Um, you had a top five, a top ten at worst player in the league during that time that was going to basically obligate you to finish reasonably well every year, certainly in the playoffs most of the time in the title conversation and, and contention. Um, as he started to get older, I imagine that would have become less true. It was becoming less true because he wasn't healthy. But it, to me, that's the difference. Like, it's it's Dolan to some extent, but the bigger issue is that the team has been without a legitimate, like, no questions asked. This guy is one of the 10 best players in the league sort of player since Patrick. They have not had one. They've gotten maybe close at times. Carmelo was 
sort of that guy, but, you know, they had years where they were nowhere near the playoffs when he was on the team, too. Um, Patrick was so good by himself that I think he put them in a position and gave them an identity to where they had a shot every year. And, um, you know, if you want to argue that Dolan is the reason they haven't been able to get a superstar, that people don't want to go play there because of him, maybe there's some truth to that. I imagine that it's probably not completely true. Um, but to me, that's been the missing factor here. And, uh, you know, why it's been so painful for Knicks fans that they haven't won a lottery since Patrick is that I think most teams do get an opportunity to kind of get out of that hole. And the Knicks have not really had that. They've traded away a lot of picks. Um, they've spent a lot of money, but they spend money on things that are kind of, you know, the shiny new object a lot of times that, you know, then has a knee blowout or anything else. Or they sign Amari to a deal where his knees are known to be a problem and they sign him to a deal without insurance. So there's a lot of stuff like that that the Knicks have done and gotten wrong. But I think the biggest issue is just they haven't gotten a bona fide superstar in, in the 20 years that Patrick's been gone. And um, generally, more or less every team has had one. And the Knicks have, you know, I think Carmelo's probably the closest they've had to that, him and Amari. And um, they looked like Porzingis for a little bit. It looked like Porzingis was on the way, but it didn't work out. Yeah, but then you've got, you know, and, and frankly, you know, Porzingis still could be a really good player. You know, still could be a perennial all-star if he could stay healthy. But, you know, some of the problems with the team over that time has been management. And uh, Dolan is part of that. Dolan hiring uh, Phil Jackson, who's someone who'd never been in that job. Um, and not just hadn't been in the job, but hadn't really dealt with players from that side of the table. Um, even Leon Rose, uh, who hadn't done this job before, had at least dealt with players at a high level, has you know the liking of a lot of players and uh, good relations with a lot of players. You couldn't really say that of Phil. Um, so not to mention like whether Phil wanted to do the job, whether he wanted to actually be involved on a day-to-day basis, which, you know, looking at the way he did it, I'm not completely convinced he did. So... There is a lot to it, but I, I think ownership is part of it. Certainly, management is part of it, but I also just think luck and good fortune and the idea that who would have thought that the Knicks could go 20 years without a superstar wanting to play in that market. Carmelo obviously did, but um, like I said, he might have been one level beneath that or kind of one or two players outside of that conversation where having this guy on your team guarantees you'll make the playoffs. There was a time and. Carmelo's career where I think that was valid, but I don't think that most of it was during the New York time. Yeah, I mean, Carmelo was a little bit of a DH sort of in baseball. He's just one-dimensional, not a great passer, not a great defender. And like you said, it's a great point. You need a top three, top five player. And I still wonder, the Knicks, are they going to be patient, wait for the lottery balls to kind of break their way, or are they going to get impatient over the next year or two and say, hey, we got to go all in and get Damian Lillard? Not that that changes your life or, you know, the next guy. I'm curious what the Knicks... Uh, you know, strategy is going to be, that, like I said, a, a step back this year, which is kind of predictable after last year. But uh, it'll be interesting. I, Chris, I, I can't thank you enough. You were great. The book is great. Blood in the Garden, the flagrant history of the 1990s New York Knicks. Tell people where they can buy your book. Sure. Well, thanks so much again for having me on, Will. Um, you should be able to get the book pretty much anywhere. Um, I can just be honest with saying the easiest is probably Amazon. You order it there. Um, you've got a Prime account. You probably get the book in the next day or two. I know plenty of people that are just completely anti-Amazon, which I get it. Um, if that's the case, you can get the book through um, a site called Bookshop um, or IndieBound or anything like that, where you essentially just say where you're located, and you can get it from your nearest um, from your nearest independent bookstore, which is kind of the polar opposite of something like Amazon. You can probably find it through Barnes and Noble. You can have it shipped from there. 
Um, if you live in New York, your local Barnes & Noble probably has it. Your local bookshops probably have it in New York City. If you're somewhere else, maybe not. But just call ahead to your bookstore and see if they have it. If not, I'm sure they're happy to order it for you. Um, if you do get it through Amazon, I know it's been discounted um, since it's made the bestseller list. So I'm, I'm just appreciative if people want to do it that way. Kindle, you can find it that way. You get an audiobook version. Got a great narrator to read it. Everybody was asking, are you going to read it? And I didn't want to because I kind of wanted to hear somebody else read it out loud um, who voices everything properly and has a certain grit to his voice that just seems to fit those teams. So, um, but there's multiple options in terms of how you want to go about, how you can go about buying it if you'd like to. So I'm just appreciative of any support that people want to lend. But, but thank you for giving me an opportunity to plug it. Well, people that listen to this podcast, we've helped you make some money. The picks have been good. So reinvest some of that money. Buy Chris's book. You'll love it. It's a great gift. You, you won't be able to put it down. It's so good. I mean, there's so much I couldn't even get to between Riley giving out uh, allowances for gambling money, trips to Reno. The book uh, is just tremendous. Chris, you're the best. I appreciate you coming on. I'd love to have you on again sometime. Chris Herring, everyone. Thanks for coming on, Chris. Thanks so much for having me, Will. Really appreciate you. All right. Thank you guys to listening. Thank you to Chris Herring for coming on. Really enjoyed that. Really, uh, you know, learned a lot. Again, if you read the book, you're, you're going to really uh, enjoy it. There's just so many great stories, so many great moments uh, from that era, which at times doesn't seem like that long ago, but you go back and watch some of these games, it, it seems like another lifetime ago. So really enjoyed that with Chris. Hopefully we'll get him uh, on again soon. Uh, tomorrow's the trade deadline. As of yet, nothing with Harden, nothing with Simmons. So uh, we'll be doing more on that. We'll be doing more on the Super Bowl. We'll be back tomorrow. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you to Chris Herring. This is the New York City Cast presented by Bet River Sportsbook. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is uncanny usa he says somebody's in the house and i screamed listen to uncanny usa wherever you get your bbc podcasts if you dare